It is 2,000 years ago, and there is a lone Jewish man walking in the Judean wilderness. He is a young man, and he's returning to his home in northern Galilee. He's left Jerusalem, where he made a recent pilgrimage. Now, it's hot. The Judean wilderness can be rough. His tunic is filled with dirt and sweat, and he's breathing quite heavily at this point. He's being in between two different towns that he's quite familiar with, and he knows there's an easier path between the two, walking through some fields. And so he takes this shortcut in order to possibly save some time. And he's walked this journey a lot. And so he has a certain rhythm and cadence with the step. He has a favorite walking stick he always takes with him. And so it's step, step, walking stick, step, step. And there's a rhythm and a cadence to that. But then all of a sudden, one, one hit of the walking stick creates a little type of thunk sound that's a little different than a walking stick hitting dirt. Now, for the most part, if you had a walking stick and you were walking and something made a weird nose, you would think nothing of it. However, curiosity gets the best of him, and he picks up his walking stick and raises it a little higher and brings it down with some force. And sure enough, like a thunk, a sound, something different. So he taps. And sure enough, there's something there. And so he bends over and moves away some of the dust and the gravel, and he sees something. He continues digging and then notices this is, this is wood. There's some type of wood that's buried here. So now his curiosity has got the best of him. He's digging and digging. And eventually he uncovers what appears to be some type of chest, like a treasure chest looking type of thing. So he does one of those things where you kind of, you know, look around, make sure no one's watching you. And he opens it and he's completely shocked. He sees in a single instance, more wealth than he's ever seen in his entire life. Precious stones and metals. I mean, it's just like absolute amazement. And he's thinking to himself, I can work every day for the rest of my life, and I would never come close to even earning a fraction of what's in this chest. And so he does the second look around, closes it, puts it back in the hole, quietly puts the dust and the gravel over it, maybe a little more than what was originally there. And he tells himself, I'm going to do whatever I can to come back and buy this field. I'm going to buy it. He knows he doesn't have enough money as is, but he says, I will do anything and everything. So he goes home and begins to sell everything his hand that he has. He says, whatever cattle he has, the goats, whatever extra chickens he has, he sells the PlayStation, the TV, every last thing he can do to come up with enough money to buy this field. He finally comes up with enough to make an offer and it's accepted. And with joy, the man purchases the field with the buried chest. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now think for a moment about this claim. Jesus is saying that his kingdom and his person, his being, is worth more than anything in the world. He is so valuable that it would be better to sell everything you had in order to obtain just this one thing. This is first century Jesus of Nazareth saying his kingdom is worth more than anything. He is that valuable. 
Now, it's important to note our definition of parables once again, uh, because oftentimes we can be trying to get parables to do more than what they're actually supposed to do. So parable comes from the Greek word parabole, and that's composed of two Greek words, para and bole. Para means alongside of or beside something. Bole means to throw or to cast. So essentially, a parable is a story that's thrown alongside of another story or a different set of truths. And in telling the one story, you're supposed to apprehend that other story or that other set of truths. This is important because sometimes when we approach parables like this, um, we start to ask things that we shouldn't be asking. Some of you might have already attempted to do this, like you're already working in your mind. You're going like, okay, Jesus is talking about this guy who finds the kingdom of God, but the way he does it is kind of messed up, right? And you started wondering about like the ethical dimensions of the parable. Like, shouldn't the man tell the owner of the field? Maybe it was his treasure. Maybe, maybe he knows it, and he's just basically stealing this. And, and so there's all kinds of things that you begin to wrestle with. But the parable is just trying to communicate one simple point. So, for example, uh, metaphors and analogies do this. Jesus later in the Gospels will say that when he returns, he will return like a thief in the night. You are not supposed to then go, oh, Jesus is like a thief in the night. Let me think about the ethical dimensions of Jesus claiming that he's involved in thievery. Like, you're not supposed to do that. It's an image that says he's going to come quick. You're going to least expect it. Likewise, this parable is saying the kingdom is worth it. It's worth everything. It's worth doing whatever you can to obtain. It's that valuable. Now, notice the person in this parable does so with joy. He does so with joy. It's not as if he's, oh, I have to to get rid of this, I have to get rid of this. No, whatever he can get rid of in order that he might obtain that which is most valuable brings him joy. You could see him like, like, there's another thing I can make, there's another thing I can sell, and I could do this side job, da-da-da, and it's joy. In other words, obtaining the kingdom and experiencing Christian living is not a miserable existence. It's a joy. What you get is worth more in every sense. Christ says, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. My kingdom is worth it. He sells everything he has, and with joy he purchases the field. Think of it another way, Um, another way of thinking about the kingdom. Let's say you are in, in line to buy a house. So you're online and you are on one of those apps like Realtor.com, Zillow, Trulia, you know those ones where you could search for homes in a particular area, look at the prices, see pictures and descriptions, and you set the filter to look at houses in the area that you want, and you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of looking at some things, and you see this one house. It's like, mm, this is probably 10 to 20% past my budget, but, you know, like, what do you do? You look at it. So what most people do. You know, it's, you know it costs too much, but you're going to look at it. So you look at this house, it's 20% past your budget, and you're kind of looking at the pictures, and you're going, I think this is kind of over. This is, thought I'd have like a bigger backyard for that price or something, you know? And then you start reading the description. And in the description, there's this line that says, buyer agrees to purchase as is. You know, buy it as is. Then it has an additional line. It says, buyer agrees to take all that is in the house. And so then it begins to list some of the things that like come with the house. The fridge, the appliances, the piano, some of these curtains, and you're going, 
You know, it's a little, little pricey, but you know what? That's not bad because that stuff's probably nicer than mine. I buy pretty cheap, junky stuff. And what if I actually got to move and I didn't have to move? I just like threw away what I didn't want. And then I moved into this house with all the other stuff already there. So you keep looking at the pictures. And then all of a sudden you stumble upon the piano that was mentioned. You're like, my. Okay. Now for most people, you'd be like, oh man, I don't, I don't want to, I want to with that thing. But you're sort of like a mini expert on pianos. And so you know that this is a custom Steinway Model D piano. And you know that a normal Model D would cost you roughly $150,000, but this is a custom one. It's actually one of a kind. This is a custom one of a kind piano so much that it actually has its own name. It's officially named Pictures at an ex Exhibition. It's worth a few million dollars. So what do you do? You call the realtor up. Um, yeah, I'm kind of interested in the house. So all the stuff that's in the house stays in the house? Like, they're like, oh yeah, the, the seller, the owner insists on it. They, they don't want any of this stuff. They're, they're downscaling. And then you go, yeah, so that, what about that piano? What's up with that? No, the seller is insistent. Quote, I will never move that big piece of junk to another home ever again. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do? It's 20% past your budget. You do everything you can to purchase this home because there's a piano in it worth way more than the home. It'll make you set for life. And so you, you sell your home, you sell your car, you sell your baseball, collect, baseball card collection. You remember way back in the day, you got a gold filling, so you get the pliers and you get ready to go. <laughs> like you're gonna do anything and everything you can to buy the home. Because you know what it's worth, you know, you know what it is, you know how precious this piano is. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he, had, that he had and bought it. Now think of the claim again. Jesus of Nazareth. He's not wealthy. He has no kingdom-wide ministry or any of, of anything of that sort at this point. But Jesus is nonetheless saying, you seek first my kingdom. My kingdom is worth it. My person, my being, I am worth it. Now compare that to all the things that we usually uh, work and toil for, right? Like we work and toil and strive to get so many things in this life. And the vast majority of those things, like we know, are gonna like depreciate, they don't hold their value. And, like some of us are, we're, we're cognitively aware of our own like whackness or wickedness, like how we kind of convince ourselves that certain things will make us happy. So, you know, you're like, you're working, you're saving extra. If I could just get this one thing. And, but you know, deep down, like, I'll probably like it for six months and then I'll go in the garage with all the other things I worked and toiled for. Like, you know that ahead of time, but what happens? You'll still do it. You'll st you still end up doing it. And so many of the things that we work and toil and strive for, not only depreciate in an earthly sense, but in light of eternity, depreciate into nothingness. And Jesus is saying, seek first my kingdom. Do everything you can to obtain it. 
It's worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Think of a hotel you stay in for three to four days. You're on a small vacation. You're going to stay in a place three, four days, and you get to the hotel, and you're sort of going like, hmm, this place is all right, but it's not, it's not really comfortable. It's not to my tasting. So I'm going to order a different mattress for this hotel, get some different blankets, some quality stuff. These curtains are ugly. Let's have them replaced. This TV's way too small. Let's get the big screen up. And you're spending thousands of dollars to make this room that you're staying in for three to four days awesome. You are wasting thousands of dollars investing in temporary residence. That is not your permanent home. Do you get this? You are wasting time, effort, and money into something that's not your permanent place of residence. Seek first my kingdom. It's worth it. It's a pearl of great price. It's valuable beyond measure. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. Go buy the field. Do whatever you can to get it. Jesus gives us a third parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now Jesus gives an image about the final judgment, but he does it through the image of fishing. And fishing around the Sea of Galilee, everyone would have known this. There's two types of ways to fish, two different types of nets primarily that were used in this time period. The first type of net and the first way to fish would be a kind of a single man operation. You'd get knee deep to waist deep in the water and you'd have a small net that you could throw by yourself. And so you'd be on the shore looking for movement or a place where you think there might be fish. You throw the net and you collect it yourself. That was one way. The other way was to use a great net, a big giant net that was pulled by a boat. And we know that's the thing that Jesus is referring to because the word here is segene. It's a specific type of net. So the Greek gives you a clue into to the image here. And picture a boat pulling a giant net, a huge net. And it's collecting all sorts of things. Similar to a dragnet today, you might picture there like some garbage, some useless stuff is in there. But there's also going to be all sorts of different types of fish. In the Sea of Galilee, there's a little over 20 different species there. So you're going to collect all these different types of fish. It's not targeting one in specific. You're going to collect all these and whatever else this gets pulled, whatever else gets pulled up. And then you're going to sort it. And Jesus is saying, like, the righteous will be given the kingdom of heaven, and then the wicked will go to the place of judgment, where there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what's up with the separation thing? Well, Jews at this time period, Jews that were faithful to Torah in Israel, couldn't eat just any fish. Leviticus chapter 11 outlines what would be a kosher, like kosher fish, kosher eating, what would be appropriate. And so fish at this time needed to have both scales and fins. And so if you get like a catfish thing up in that net, that's the bad fish. Doesn't, doesn't have scales. Some of you, that's hard to understand because you love catfish. Like, you're just going to throw away one of the best tasting fish? Yes, Leviticus 11, at this time period, you would throw it away. For those of you who love catfish, just be grateful to God. You are under the new covenant, and you, you could eat the catfish. Okay. 
So Jesus is saying, likewise, there's this separation. And then there's certain ones that go to the place of judgment. It says there's this weeping and gnashing of teething. Now, the phrase gnashing of teeth is really important because what comes to mind when we hear that is probably not what people would immediately hear because that phrase gnashing of teeth has a long history in the Bible. It's used all over the place in the Old and New Testament. And when someone is gnashing their teeth, it's predominantly used to describe someone who is angry and full of wrath at someone else. And most of the time, you see this in the Psalms, it's the enemies of God, the enemies of the people of God, angry and in a mode of persecution to harm the people of God. So the psalmist will talk about like, the enemies are around me and they gnash their teeth at me. Picture a prophet proclaims God's truth. The prophet proclaims God's truth and then there's people who are so bitter, bitter and stubborn and opposed to the prophet and opposed to God that then rather than receive the message of the prophet, they revile him and mock him. And as they do that in anger and bitterness, they are grinding their teeth, gnashing their teeth. It's a way to say you are bitterly opposed to God or his people, which is fascinating because it's almost saying like, in the final judgment, the enemies of God will forever and always be gnashing their teeth at his truth. Bitter and resentful and angry at God to the very end. It's a gnashing of teeth image. Goes on. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Okay, cards on the table. This is a very difficult passage to understand. There's all kinds of different interpretations. Like just, just review it really quick. Uh, Jesus like, Do you, did you understand this? Do you understand the parables? The disciples, of course, say, we got it. It's like, probably not. Nevertheless, Jesus says, okay, well, then you're going to be like someone who owns a house, and then you're going to bring out the treasure both old and new. Like, what does that even mean? Okay. The word for scribe here is grammatus, and that word in Greek can mean scribe. It can mean someone who, a writer, records things, a teacher, or an interpreter. And what I think, and it's not, it's not just me, there's other, other, other people who think this, but I, what I think is going on is Jesus saying, if you understand these things about the kingdom, the parables, then you too are going to be teachers. Right now, the focus is on Jesus being the teacher, but you too are going to be like scribes, like grammatists, these teachers and interpreters. And you have the kingdom, the treasure. And what are you to do with that? You are to take out the treasure and show it. You are to teach what the kingdom of God, the treasure, is all about. And possibly this idea about there being old and new might be the, the idea that Jesus is not simply saying, oh, in my kingdom, what I'm teaching is something brand new on the scene and, and it's, it's come from nowhere. He's saying that this is an old truth, an old treasure, that it's been being revealed in the Hebrew scriptures from the very beginning. So bring out the old and new treasure for the world to see. I think something like that is what's occurring here. I think. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? 
Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? Jesus goes to his hometown and he begins to teach. And everyone recognizes him. They know him. They grew up with him. Think of this a small Jewish town. They know him. They know his brothers, his sisters, his mom. They say he's the son of the carpenter. And they're, they're astounded. They're amazed. How is he teaching like this? Now, recall a few weeks ago, if you were here, the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, God's truth comes down. And the sower sows the seeds. It's God's truth going out. And the seed falls onto different types of soil. In that parable, there was four types of soil. There was a soil that was so dry, birds just come and eat, eat the seed up. It has no chance. Some seed, some of God's truth falls into soil that appears to be good, but it's actually rocky underneath, so the plant can't grow roots. And when the sun comes out, the, scorch, the scorching sun kills the plant. Some seeds fell among weeds, and so they were choked out. But some seeds, some, sometimes when God's truth is delivered, it falls into to good soil, and the plant grows and bears fruit up to a hundredfold. In this case, it appears at first glance that Man, in Jesus' hometown, maybe this is good soil. They've known him. They grew up with him. They know he's special and unique. They're admitting that his teaching is astounding. There's a special wisdom here. So what happens? What type of soil are they? This is what occurs next. They took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They're offended. Now, to what degree are they offended? The Gospel of Luke tells us what actually occurs. That he, you could read Luke chapter 4 about what Jesus said, what his message was, and exactly how they responded. To what degree was the offense? How bad was it? The people in Jesus' hometown, they try to kill him. It says they take him to a cliff to try and throw him off of it. That's an ancient form of stoning. One of the ways you could stone someone is you'd take them to a cliff and you'd throw them off, and if they survived, then you would throw rocks at them until they died. They try to stone Jesus. Now, this is more than just, well, there was a, a unique prophet in town who had a very special message. We were offended. They grew up with Jesus. Small Jewish town, they know him. They know him. They grew up with him. They know the brothers and the sisters this is how it was. Nevertheless, the message of Christ was so offensive, they tried to kill him. Which brings us to a theme that is being developed, but it's actually a theme that reverberates all throughout Scripture. And it's intertwined and, and threaded through the totality of Scripture. The word for offense here that they took an offense is scandalizo, and that's the verb form. The noun form is scandalon. That may sound familiar because scandalon sounds like the English word scandal. It's where we get our word scandal. Scan Jesus is a scandalon. He's an offense. And the word in Koine Greek in that time could mean like a trap or a snare that's laid on the ground, or you can picture um, like a rock on the ground, and you're walking, and you stub your toe and you fall, and you curse the rock and you're angry at it, and you're going, that's a little exact, is that, you're exaggerating, like, it doesn't happen. Of course it does. That, you ever stub your toe on a rock? What do you do? 
in the next three or four or five seconds, whatever sanctification you've developed over the last three decades of your life disappears. You curse the stone, you curse life. It's better if I was never born. And, and you're angry at it. So when you hear the word scandalon, think of something that causes an offense, an offense to such a degree that you might want to, you, you curse it. Again, go back to the parable of the sower. God's truth comes down, and depending upon the soil, depending upon the heart, depending upon the person, it's received differently. For some people, the message of the cross is one that is received with joy. It's like the treasure that you finally found. For some people, it is so offensive that you gnash your teeth in bitter resentment and rebellion to that truth. And what occurs in this instance is that the people of his hometown try to kill Jesus. Now, God's truth and the message doesn't change, but again, there's different types of soil. So think of it like this. Um, let's, say, uh, let's say dad announces, we're going out to eat tonight. And first thing someone asks is, where to? Where are we eating? And dad says, we're getting sushi. And immediately one of the kids goes, yes, yes, sushi, I love it. Thank you, Lord. Love sushi. And another kid goes, gross. What's wrong with you guys? It's raw fish. Why would you do that? Now you see, same location, same restaurant, same food, but it's going to be received differently by the individual. Some people, it's, yes, sushi, and other press, ah, gross. Now, in that case, um, we're dealing with a morally neutral thing, maybe. Um, it's not, it's not um, you know what I mean by maybe, like, sushi is intrinsically morally good, like, all of the time. Like, it's always a good thing to go to sushi. It's not bad. Um, the one kid doesn't see straight in life. Um, but that's a, that's a morally neutral example right? What food someone's like, that's, that's morally neutral. But it's still the same point is that it could be received in radically different ways. Parallel that with the message of Christ. He speaks truth, and it's received sometimes with gladness and joy, and life transformation. Sometimes it falls onto soil that it appears that maybe a plant starts to grow, but the sun comes out and it dies. Sometimes it doesn't even take root, just completely rejected. That's the nature of it. That's the way it, it works. You can step on the stone, stub your toe, and fall down and curse the rock, or you can look up ahead and see the danger and destruction you were about to walk into and say, God bless this little rock, man. This thing saved me. I was about to walk into destruction. The nature of the message is offensive. This is the term, scandalon in Greek. And it was a word that the first Christians were very much acquainted with because they were going around the Roman Empire proclaiming that Christ is the crucified God of the world. I mean, you, you have to know how much of a scandal that was. Remember, the cross is the most reviled, disgusting image no one wants to picture a cross. Nevertheless, the first Christians are saying God himself died on a cross for men. 
and that image and everything it invokes, the very idea that, that there is a God who ought to be powerful, but that a so-called powerful God suffers the most horrific death, that is a message of offense. People received that and it was disgusting. It was reviling. It was met with revulsion. What type of people would believe that a man nailed to a cross suffering like that, that, that that's king, that's God. So it was uh, something of foolishness. They were mocked. It was something to revile. It was disgusting. And so the Christians knew the message of their nat- the, me- the nature of their message was scandalon. It was a stumbling stone. It was a rock. It would cause offense. This is a picture that I've showed you uh, once or twice before. So if you've been here a long time, you might be remembering it vaguely. It's some scratchings on a wall dated 200 AD, Rome, and it's ancient graffiti. It's ancient graffiti. You can enhance it a little bit and kind of see what, what it depicts, but someone carved this into a wall in Rome, and it says, Alexamena sebete theon. Alexander worships his God. And what do you see? You see the man, that's Alexander, and he's worshiping someone on a cross. But notice the head of the figure on the cross. It's, it's a donkey. So this is a, a blasphemous image that is mocking Christians. They're saying, do you want to know how ridiculous and foolish the Christians are? They worship a jackass of a savior. That was the message. What type of foolish, ridiculous, stupid, vile, repulsive people would think that a man who died the criminal's death suffering on a cross is the world's true Lord? It was scandalon. It was scandalon. This is disgusting. That's what Christians worship. And the first Christians, they knew this. This wasn't surprising or shocking to them because they might remember how it first felt to them. Nevertheless, Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word folly here is moria. It it means uh, uh, foolishness or something that is stupid. So follow this. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the nature of the message of the cross. It's foolishness to some, to others, it is the very power of God made manifest to a broken world. Therefore, Paul would also say in the book of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So go back to the nature of the parable of the sower. It's describing the nature of reality. God's truth comes down and it's received differently. And in the one parable, there's four different types of soil. But in this case, there are some people, it's broken into two categories, who look at the message of the cross and say, this is foolishness. It's a scandal. It's offensive to me. But there are some who say, I am not ashamed. This is the power of God to save sinners like me. Two different responses to the exact same message. And when you understand that 
This idea of a scandal on the rock of offense isn't just a thing that's commented here or there. It's a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. You'll see it pop up in multiple places. I'll give you another example. This is Peter talking in the book First Peter, one of the 12 who was there when Jesus was, was rejected in his hometown. He says, as you come to him, come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is a stone. And for some, the stone is the stone of offense. They reject it. They want nothing of it. But to others, he is a precious stone. More valuable than jewels, more valuable than gold. Peter goes on. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For others, Christ is the precious stone, a cornerstone who you believe in, and because of that, you will not face shame. Then Peter goes on and he quotes two Old Testament passages as if to say, this isn't just something new. This has always been the case. The prophets were always rejected. God's truth is always met with resentment. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118, saying this is all, way back in Psalms, we already knew this was true. And, last section, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's a quote from Isaiah 8. Everyone's going to walk, and when you hear the gospel, everyone's going to trip and fall and stumble and stub their toe. But some people will curse the rock, and some people will see, I just stepped over the precious stone, a precious stone that is worth more than all the world's gold combined. Different people, different responses. Now he says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's a quote from Isaiah 8. Let's look at Isaiah 8. At this time, uh, the Assyrian Empire, that's the big empire, sort of the bad guys on the scene, and people are fearing them, they're in dread of them, they're terrified, there's all these kind of alliances being made, and people aren't trusting God because of a so-called impending doom. So Isaiah, the prophet, says this. God speaks through Isaiah, the prophet, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken and shall be snared and taken. So follow this. Isaiah is saying, you don't fear the Assyrian Empire. You don't fear that. You fear the Lord. You stand in awe of him and you worship him. Because what is before you today? God will either be your sanctuary or your stumbling stone. You will either fear him or fear the Assyrian Empire. It's the same message. It's the same truth. But how you receive it and respond to it, it will either be your sanctuary or your stumbling stone. Christ will either be your salvation or he will be the rock of offense. He will be your deliverance or your destruction, your rescue or your ruin. When you look to worship God, it will either turn you into a Cain or an Abel. It can harden your heart or soften your heart. So Christ 
can be the stumbling stone or the precious stone. So Jesus goes to his hometown and he delivers a message. And at first, everyone's all amazed and astonished, but the more Jesus teaches, the more they hate it. The more they hate it. And they try to kill him. They hear the truth, and it's as if they're like gnashing their teeth in bitter defiance of what they're hearing. And that pattern plays out, right? When Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem at first, Hosanna in the highest. This is the king. A few days later, when the suffering servant is brought out, what do they say? Crucify him. Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, he preaches the gospel to the crowd. And do you know what the crowd does to Stephen? It says they, they begin to stone him, but what does it say immediately after he's done preaching? Anyone know? They begin to gnash their teeth at him. They hear the truth, and in bitterness and defiance and rebellion to the message, it's just like Isaiah the prophet. It's anger and wrath against God's message. And they stone him. They kill him. He's the first Christian martyr. So Jesus faces a similar rejection in his hometown. Now let's take a look at the big picture and put some of the pieces together. Like what is, what's, what's taking place here? Because there's actually something that's, that's incredibly profound. Jesus has just taught us that his kingdom is worth everything. He is the treasure buried in the field. He is the pearl of great price. Do everything you can in order to obtain it. Why? Because he's worth it and he's always worth it. And then Jesus, throughout the scriptures, and Matthew in his telling of this gospel account, they're leading us to the point that will say Jesus is being rejected here because he's ultimately going to be rejected. And likewise, the same way they rejected the Son of God, they will reject you. And so this is a preparation for rejection and persecution. So put that side by side by the parables. Like, what is that telling us? It's that Jesus is rejected, and so his followers might be rejected, but don't you for a single instance forget the fact that rejection will always be worth it because Christ is always worth it. He is the treasure buried in the field. He is the pearl of great price. Sell everything you can, do whatever you can in order to obtain it. He's worth it. Do whatever you can. And if you face rejection, you are disowned by friends or family or whatever may come your way, No, it's still worth it. It's still worth it. You have the treasure. You have the kingdom of God. You have the kingdom of heaven. You've been brought in. And so this it's 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 this in one sense, this news of of rejection and sadness, but at the same time, when you understand what's taking place, you realize, man, it will always be worth it. And notice, it is not saying that bad things won't happen. It's just saying that faithfulness to Christ will always, in the end, prove to be worth it. Because he's more valuable. He's worth it. He's more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Now, transpose that all the way throughout the scriptures, and you see that everywhere, and then you see it, what it means for today. Because, as as you feel as a Christian, you've picked up on this, there is a growing hostility to the message of the cross in our culture. Now, let me clarify. I am in no way saying that 
us in our current, our, in our current cultural context face persecution like m- countless Christians do across the world. There is immense persecution and suffering taking place in the world against God's people today. We don't have that, but there is a growing hostility to the message of the cross in our culture. Like 40 years ago, if you were to say something like, I'm a Christian in the workplace, you wouldn't be looking around and say like, how loud did I say that? Did I out myself? But some of you feel that pressure now. And again, I'm not saying it's super heavy persecution, but there is a undeniable, clear, rising hostility to the message of the cross. And you have to learn to navigate those difficult waters. And my encouragement to you is that there will be times when it's like it makes you mad, frustrated, or maybe you're, you're overtaken by timidity or fear. But just know Christ is always worth it. So don't you ever for a single moment flinch or hesitate and become ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is foolishness to an unbelieving world, but it is the power of God made manifest to you. It is your salvation. It was a stumbling stone that turned into your precious stone, more valuable than gold, more valuable than diamonds. Never for a moment flinch or hesitate in embarrassment or shame. Remember the words of Paul the Apostle. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So what I want to do is encourage and maybe challenge two different types of people in the room today. And it's always an oversimplification when you break everyone into two different categories. Nevertheless, hopefully it's helpful. Because there are some people when you're in the one category and you're the type of person when you hear a message like this, you're going, oh no. (laughs) I feel convicted. I need to be more bold. I'm normally just the person who keeps my head down. I don't say anything. Keep the peace. Should I say something? No, it's not worth it. You don't, you're, 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 it's difficult for you to share your faith. Um, and so you hear this and it's like, oh no, I can't be, a sh- I need to do better. So my encouragement for that person is, this is why Jesus gives us these parables. The stories are supposed to be read again and again so that they, they're embedded into the fabric of our being. They're in our bones. They run through our blood. So that ever there's a moment of doubt or hesitation, you remind yourself, he's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure buried in a field and he sold everything he had to get it. Christians need the parables of Jesus deep in their soul so that it's, it's like intuitive. They're just in you and they remind you what's worth it, what truly matters. And so you be bold and courageous and grow in that area. And there's another type of person who, when you hear messages like this, you're like, oh yeah, finally that guy preaching with some boldness, man. I'm tired of all these Christians. Everyone's afraid. Never offend anybody. Don't offend anybody. I'm not afraid to offend anybody. I offend people all the time. And you know what? Why? Because that's in the Bible. Christ is an offense. He's the stumbling stone. And it's like, Yes, your goal is to get someone to hear the message of the cross and then trust the results to God and maybe they might take up an offense or maybe they receive it in joy and salvation. But you're seeing people take up an offense and you're thinking you're faithful. All the while, you yourself have become a stumbling block and an offense before you even get them to the real offense. 
In other words, when you offend people, you want to offend them over the right thing at least. But you're just a jerk and have a bad attitude and you're offending people all the way so that they never get to even hear the gospel. You're like, what would Jesus do? Well, he'd offend people just like me. It's like, no. The gospel is an offense. It's foolishness to an unbelieving world. But you want to get someone to the point where they can hear it and and prayerfully, you're, you're praying for the person, hoping that God softens their heart. The problem is so many times people create offenses before the things that are actually offensive in our faith. And it's just because you're being a jerk. So on one side, I want to pull people this direction. On another side, I want to pull people this direction. And the way you do that is you have these stories, these parables. They're short and they're images. I mean, they're so short, you don't even have to... (laughs) This is the beauty of it. They are so short, you, you almost don't even have to like have the whole scripture in mind, just the image alone is enough. The treasure in the field, the pearl, picture the pearl, and that whole image unlocks a reality for you. And so those images need to be stored in your brain. How much is our kingdom worth? And you remind yourself, rejection is always worth it. You share the gospel, you teach the gospel, you proclaim the gospel. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts off small, and it's growing slowly but surely, but it'll grow into a giant tree. The kingdom of heaven is like a leavening agent put into bread. At first, you don't see the bread rising and you're not aware of any changes, but slowly but surely, the bread is rising and it's being transformed from the inside out. The kingdom of God is like a sower who throws seed in four types of soil. Some people will reject it, but the harvest is sure and certain. There is good soil, and some seeds will grow to bear fruit 30, 60, even 100-fold. These are what Jesus' parables are meant to do. They remind us of ultimate reality and ultimate truth, and they remind us how much he's worth. Rejection is always worth it. He's always worth it. Don't flinch or hesitate for a moment. He is more precious than gold, diamond, and silver. You find that treasure in the field, you do whatever you can to get it. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. The great scandal on, the scandal, the offense For some, the broken broken body of Christ nailed to a cross is an offense. Who would worship that man? For others, it is the cornerstone, the precious stone, more valuable than all gold or silver. So Lord, we remember your body broken on our behalf. Jesus takes the cup. It's the cup of the the blood of the new covenant. When we take it, we are giving our allegiance to Jesus. We say we want to be faithful to you, to proclaim your death and resurrection until you return. And in this act, the scriptures tell us, we are proclaiming the death and resurrection of our Lord. So let's proclaim, proclaim his death, his resurrection together. Father, I pray for the wisdom that we need to navigate the waters that we find ourselves in. Help us to be faithful 
Help us to be wise. Help us to be firm and strong and gentle and gracious. Thank you that your son Jesus modeled that perfectly for us. May we grow to be more like him with every passing day, more conformed to his image. Help us to be faithful throughout this week. Help us to be faithful as we respond in worship. The name of your son Jesus is worthy to be praised. We want to honor it today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.